0: Section 1 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy chapter forty two supreme ironic procession part one for six and forty years england had been ruled by german princes one elector of hanover named george had been succeeded by another elector of hanover named george and george the first and george the second george the father and george the son resembled each other in being by nature german rather than english and by inclination electors of hanover rather than kings of england Against each of them, a Stuart prince had raised a standard and an army. George I had his James Francis Edward, who called himself James III, and whom his opponents called the Pretender, by a translation which gave an injurious signification to the French word Pretendant. George II had his Charles Edward, the Young Pretender, who a generation later led an invading army well into England before he had to turn and fly for his life. A very different condition of things awaited the successor of George II. George II's grandson was an English prince and an Englishman. He was born in England, his father was born in England, his native tongue was the English tongue, and if he was elector of Hanover that seemed an accident the title was as unimportant and trivial to the king of england as his title of king of france was unreal and theatrical the remnant of the jacobites could not with truth call the heir to the throne a foreigner and they could not in reason hope to make such a demonstration in arms against him as they had made against his grandfather and his great-grandfather the young king came to a much safer throne under much more favorable auspices than either of the two monarchs his kinsmen and his namesakes who had gone before him the young king heard the first formal news of his accession to the throne from the lips of no less stately a personage than the great commoner himself the foremost englishman then alive george the third as he then actually was had received at kew palace some messages which told him that his grandfather was sinking fast that he was dying that he was dead george resolved to start for london on his way and not far from kew he was met by a coach-and-six which from the blue and silver liveries he knew to be that of mr pitt george received the congratulations of his great minister the great minister whom, as it was soon to appear, he understood so little and esteemed so poorly. Then Pitt, turning his horses' heads, followed his sovereign into London. Never, perhaps in English history, was a young man welcomed on his accession by so great a minister. Among the many auspicious conditions which surrounded the early days of George III's reign not the least auspicious was the presence of such a bulwark to the throne and to the realm for the name of pitt was now feared and honored in every civilized country in the world it had become synonymous with the triumphs and the greatness of england pitt was the greatest war minister england had yet known he was the first english statesman who illustrated in his own person the difference between a war minister and a minister of war. Truly, this journey of the king and the prime minister from Kew to London was what George Meredith calls a supreme ironic procession, with laughter of gods in the background. The ignorant, unwise young king led the way. The greatest living statesman in England followed after. One can hardly imagine a procession more supremely ironic almost all the whole range of human intellect was stretched out and exhausted by the living contrast between the king who went first and the minister who meekly went second pitt had made for young george the third a great empire which it was the work of george the third not long after to destroy so far as its destruction could be compassed by the stupidity of a man pitt had made the name of england a power all over the civilized world rome at her greatest spain at her greatest could hardly have surpassed the strength and the fame of england as pitt had remade it george from the very first felt a sort of coldness toward his supreme minister he had all the vague pervading jealousy which dulness naturally shows to genius it was a displeasure to him from the first that pitt should have made england so great because the work was the inspiration of the subject and not of the sovereign no one can know for certain what thoughts were filling the mind of george as he rode to london that day in front of william pitt but it may fairly be assumed that he was not particularly sorry for the death of his grandfather and that he was pleasing his spirit with the idea that he would soon emancipate himself from Mr. Pitt. "'Be a king, George,' his mother used to say to him. The unsifted youth was determined, if he could, to be a king. At the time of his accession, George was in his twenty-third year. He was a decidedly personable young prince. He had the large regular features of his race, the warm complexion of good health and a vigorous constitution, keen attractive eyes, and a firm full mouth he was tall and strongly made and carried himself with a carriage that was dignified or stiff according to the interpretation of those who observed it many of the courtly ladies thought him extremely handsome were eagerly gracious to him did their best to thrust themselves upon his attention and received it would seem very little notice in return for their pains if George showed himself indifferent and even ungallant to his enthusiastic admirers, his brother Edward was of a different disposition. But though Edward, like his brother, was an agreeable-looking youth and keen to win favor in women's eyes, he found himself like Benedict. Nobody marked him, because he was not the heir to the throne in some illustrated histories of the reign two portraits of george the are placed in immediate and pathetic contrast the one portrait represents george as he showed in the first year of his reign alert young smiling with short-cut powdered hair a rich flowered coat and the star and ribbon of the garter on his breast so might a young king look called in the flower of his age to the control of a great country, pleased, confident, and courageous. The other picture shows how the king looked in the sixtieth year of his reign. The face is old and wrinkled and weary. The straggling white locks escape from beneath a fur-trimmed cap. The bowed body is wrapped in a fur-trimmed robe. The time of two generations of men lay between the young king and the old, the longest reign then known to English history, the longest and the most eventful, George the started with many advantages over his predecessors of the same name. He was an Englishman, he spoke the English language. It was his sincere wish to be above all things English. He honestly loved English ways, he had not the faintest desire to start a seraglio in England. he had no German mistresses. He did not care about fat women. He was devoted to his mother, perhaps a good deal too devoted, but even the excess of devotion might have been pardonable in the public opinion of England. Certainly it was only his own weakness and perversity that made it for a while not pardonable. He was of the country squire's order of mind. His tastes were wholly those of the stolid, well-intentioned, bucolic country squire, he would probably have been a very respectable and successful sovereign if only he had not been plagued by the ambition to be a king. It is curious to remember that the accession of George the third was generally and joyfully welcomed. A hopeful people, having endured with increasing dislike two sovereigns of the house of Hanover, were quite prepared to believe that a third prince was rich in all regal qualities, in all public and private virtues it would perhaps have been unreasonable on the part of any dispassionate observer of public affairs to anticipate that a third george would make a worse monarch than his namesakes and immediate predecessors the dispassionate observer might have maintained that there were limits to kingly misgovernment in a kingdom endowed with a constitution and blessed with a measure of parliamentary representation and that those limits had been fairly reached by the two german princes who ruled reluctantly enough over the fortunes of england this same dispassionate observer might reasonably assuming him to possess familiar knowledge of certain facts have hazarded the prediction that george the third would be a better king than his grandfather and his great-grandfather he was certainly a better man there was so much of a basis whereupon to build a hope of better things the profligacy of his ancestors had not apparently vitiated his blood and judgment his young life had been a pure life he was in that way a pattern to princes he had been which was rare with his race a good son he was to be and there was no more rare quality in one of his stock a good husband a good father he was in his way a good friend to his friends he was sincerely desirous to prove a good king to his people. The youth of George III had passed under somewhat agitated conditions. George II's straightforward hatred of his son's wife opened a great gulf between the court and Leicester House, which no true courtier made any effort to bridge. While the young prince knew, in consequence, little or nothing of the atmosphere of St. James's, or the temper of those who breathed that atmosphere attempts were not wanting to sunder him from the influence of his mother some of the noblemen and clergymen to whom the early instruction of the young prince was entrusted labored with a persistency which would have been admirable in some other cause to sever him not merely from all his father's friends but even from his father's wife there was indeed a time when their efforts almost succeeded in alienating the young prince from his mother. The wildest charges of Jacobitism were brought against the immediate servants of the princess, charges which those who made them wholly failed to substantiate. The endeavor to remove the prince from the tutelage of his mother was abandoned. The education of the prince was committed to more sympathetic care. The change had its advantage in keeping George in the wholesome atmosphere of Leicester House instead of exposing him to the temptations of a profligate court. It had its disadvantages in leaving him entirely under the influence of a man to whose guidance, counsel, and authority the Princess Dowager absolutely submitted herself. Observers of the lighter sort are pleased to insist Upon the trifles which have the most momentous influence upon the fortunes of people and the fate of empires. A famous and facile French playwright derived the downfall of a favorite and of a political revolution from the spilling of a glass of water. There are times when the temptation to pursue this thread of fancy is very great. Suppose, for instance, it had not chanced to rain on a certain day at Clifton when a cricket match was being played, in which Frederick, Prince of Wales, happened to be interested. A fretted prince would not have had to retire to his tent like Achilles, would not have insisted on a game of whist to cheer his humor, there would have been no difficulty in forming a rubber, there would have been no need to seek for a fourth hand no wistful gentleman in attendance seeking the desirable would have had to ask the aid of a strange nobleman perched in an apothecary's chariot had this strange nobleman not been so sought and found had the apothecary not been wealthy enough to keep a chariot and friendly enough to offer a poor scotch gentleman a seat in it it is possible that the american colonies might yet form portion and parcel of the british empire that chatham's splendid dreams might have become still more splendid realities that the name of wilkes might never have emerged from an obscurity of debauch to association with the name of liberty for the nobleman who made the fourth hand in the prince of wales rubber was unfortunately a man of agreeable address and engaging manners manners that pleased infinitely the Prince of Wales, and cemented a friendship most disastrous in its consequences to England, to the English people, and to an English king. The name of the engaging nobleman was Lord Bute. At the time of this memorable game of whist, Lord Bute was thirty-six years old. He was well-educated, well-read, tall of body, pleasing of countenance, quick in intelligence, and curious in disposition these qualities won the heart of the prince of wales and lifted the young scotch nobleman from poverty and obscurity to prominence and favour the prince appointed butte a lord of the bedchamber and welcomed him to his most intimate friendship the death of the prince of wales two years later had no disastrous effect upon the rising fortunes of the favourite the influence which Bute had exercised over the mind of Frederick, he exercised over the mind of Frederick's wife and over the mind of Frederick's heir. Scandal whispered, asserted, insisted then, and has insisted ever since, that the influence which Lord Bute exercised over the Princess of Wales was not merely a mental influence. How far Scandal was right or wrong, there is no means there probably never will be any means of knowing lord bute's defenders point to his conspicuous affection for his wife edward wortley montague's only daughter in contravention of the scandal undoubtedly bute was a good husband and a good father whether the scandal was justified or not the fact that it existed that it was widely blown abroad and very generally believed was enough as far as the popularity of the princes was concerned it might as well have been justified. For years no caricature was so popular as that which displayed the boot and the petticoat, the ironic popular symbols of Lord Bute and the princess. By whatever means Lord Bute gained his influence over the Princess of Wales, he undoubtedly possessed the influence and used it with disastrous effect. He moulded the feeble intelligence of the young Prince George, he guided his thoughts directed his studies in statecraft and was to all intents and purposes the governor of the young prince's person the young prince could hardly have had a worse adviser bute was a man of many merits but his defects were in the highest degree dangerous in a person who had somehow become possessed of almost absolute power in the obscurity of a private life, the man who had borne poverty with dignity at an age when poverty was peculiarly galling to one of his station might have earned the esteem of his immediate fellows. In the exaltation of a great, if an unauthorized, rule, and later in the authority of an important public office, his defects were fatal to his fame and to the fortunes of those who accepted his sway. For nearly ten years, from the death of Frederick prince of Wales to the death of George II, Bute was all-powerful in his influence over the mother of the future king and over the future king himself. When the young prince came to the throne, Lord Bute did not immediately assume ostensible authority. He remained the confidential adviser of the young king until 1761. In 1761 he took office, assuming the secretaryship of state, resigned by lord holderness from a secretaryship to the place of prime minister was but a step and a step soon taken although he did not occupy office very long he held it long enough to become perhaps the most unpopular prime minister england has ever seen the youth of george the third was starred with a strange romance the full truth of the story of hannah lightfoot will probably never be known what is known is sufficiently romantic without the additions of legend hannah lightfoot was a beautiful quaker girl the daughter of a decent tradesman in wapping association with the family of an uncle a linen draper who lived near the court brought the girl into the fashionable part of the town the young prince saw her by accident somehow somewhere in the early part of seventeen fifty four and fell in love with her from that moment the girl disappears from certain knowledge, and legend busies itself with her name. It is asserted that she was actually married to the young prince, that William Pitt, afterwards Earl of Chatham, was present at the marriage, that she bore the prince several children. Other versions have it that she was married in a mere form to a man named Axford, who immediately left her, and that after this marriage she lived with the prince. She is supposed to have died in a secluded villa in Hackney, it is said that not only the wife of george the third but the wife of george the fourth believed that the marriage had taken place we must not attach too much importance to a story which in itself is so very unlikely it is in the last degree improbable that a statesman like pitt would have lent himself to so singular a proceeding even if an enamoured young prince was prepared to sanction his affections by a marriage, he would scarcely have found an assistant in the ablest politician of the age. The story of the Axford marriage is far more probable. If Hannah Lightfoot had been married to George, she would have been Queen of England, for there was no royal marriage act in those days. Another and more famous romance is associated with the youth of George III, Lady Sarah Lennox, the youngest daughter of the second duke of richmond was one of the most beautiful women of her time the writers of the day rave about her describe her as an angel as lovelier than any Magdalen by correggio when she was only seventeen years old her beauty attracted the young king who soon made no secret of his devotion to her the new passion divided the court into two camps the house of lennox was eager to bring about a marriage which was not then obstructed by the law henry fox one of the most ambitious men of the time or of any time was lady sarah's brother-in-law and he did his best to promote the marriage on the other hand the party which followed the lead of the princess dowager and lord bute fought uncompromisingly against the scheme the princess dowager had everything to lose lord bute had everything to lose by such an alliance the power of the princess dowager over the young king would vanish and the influence of Lord Bute over the Princess Dowager would cease to have any political importance. Lord Bute did all he could to keep the lovers apart. Henry Fox did all he could to bring the lovers together. For lovers they undoubtedly were, George again and again made it plain to those who were in his confidence that he was in love with Lady Sarah and was anxious to make her his queen and lady sarah though her heart is said to have been given to lord newbottle was quite ready to yield to the wishes of her family when those wishes were for the crown of england on the meadows of holland house the beautiful girl loveliest of arcadian rustics would play at making hay till her royal lover came riding by to greet her but the idol did not end in the marriage for which fox and the lennoxes hoped it is said that the king was jealous of Lord Newbottle. It is said that a sense of duty to his place and to his people made him resolve to subdue and sacrifice his own personal feelings. He offered his hand and his crown to the princess of Meckleburg Strelitz. Lady Sarah lost both her lovers, the king and Lord Newbottle, who, in the words of Grenville, complained as much of her as she did of the king. But she did not remain long unmarried, in seventeen sixty two she accepted as husband the famous sporting baronet sir thomas charles bunbury and nineteen years later she married the hon george napier and became the mother of an illustrious pair of soldier brothers sir charles napier the hero of Sind, and sir william napier perhaps the best military historian since julius caesar lady sarah died in eighteen twenty six in her eighty-second year in her later years she had become totally blind and she bore her affliction with a sweet patience at her death she is described by the chroniclers as probably the last surviving great-granddaughter of king charles the second a barren honour surely end of section one